I'm your host, Ina Agarwal, and this is Indivisible AI. On this podcast, we will be exploring approaches to implementing AI with respect for human rights. This means considering AI not only for its economic potential, but also for the very serious risks it continues to pose to open society across the world. I will be speaking with a number of experts across sectors, ranging from public to private, from technologist to diplomat, to help break down the issues and find solutions for moving forward. In the human rights system, Indivisibility means that a challenge to one right impacts the enjoyment of them all. I think it's a great frame for expanding our perspective to achieve much-needed balance in the development of AI. Let's get into it and see if you agree. My guest today is Ed Santow, the Human Rights Commissioner of Australia. Under Ed's pioneering leadership, the Commission launched its Human Rights and Technology Project back in 2018, which reflects its status as a first mover in this field. In our conversation today, we talk about the importance of using human rights as a system of law to frame our collective approach to AI governance. We also discuss a recent paper published by the Commission that provides guidance to companies on addressing algorithmic bias and the relationship between this notion of bias and the legal principle of non-discrimination as derived from the human rights system. Our conversation also touches on the geopolitical, another critical dimension in this field. In particular, we address the stakes of promoting liberal values not only at home, but in the global deployment of AI, and how to address those challenges on a shared stage. In addition to all of that, Ed happens to be one of my favorite people working in this field. He is not only brilliant, but also so kind and inspired in his advocacy in a way that to me reflects the best of the human rights field. I'm always delighted to learn from him. And I hope that after listening to this conversation, you come away feeling the same. I am now thrilled to be joined by Ed Santow, the Human Rights Commissioner of Australia and someone I consider to be a personal inspiration of mine. Ed, thank you so much for being here and it's great to have you. It's great to be with you. I'd I'd like to start by uh, diving right in. And I was thinking that first we would speak a bit about your work and particularly a recent report you've published on algorithmic bias of the commission. And then uh, zooming out a bit to discuss some of the broader geopolitical and governance concerns around AI and human rights. How does that sound? It sounds great. Okay, great. So uh, first, starting with the commission, can you tell me a little bit about the Human Rights and Technology Project and uh, where things are with that today? So we at the Australian Human Rights Commission um, kind of identified a few years ago uh, that um, here in Australia, but but also in a lot of countries, we were kind of living in a sort of fever dream. Uh, on the one hand, we were presented with these um, extraordinary utopian visions of how new technology like artificial intelligence can make our lives better. Um, and then simultaneously, we were presenting with dystopian visions of, of how um, often those same technologies uh, can, um, can, can actually make our um, lives not just worse, but, but kind of unlivable. And in, in a sense, both of those visions, you know, there, there's a, a realistic element to them, but neither was particularly helpful because uh, what, what they lacked was a really rigorous way of looking at how new technologies are changing how we live and what we can do about it. In in particular, how we can make sure that um, our human rights are protected in the way uh, in the ways that new technologies are developed and used. At the at the launch of the commission, um, or not the commission, the Human Rights and Technology Project, you said something that stuck with me, which was that. As we make and consume technology, we are simultaneously the revolution's beneficiaries, 
and also the ones facing the guillotine. Um, and you had followed this up by saying two and a half years ago that it's, it's not too late. So I'd love to hear your thoughts just at a high level as to how we've done over the past few years and swinging the pendulum one way or another to kind of uh, frame where we are today. I mean, I, I do feel optimistic in one sense in that I think two and a half years ago, we were still having on the whole a pretty impoverished public debate about what was at stake. We were, we were talking mostly about the kind of lower order privacy concerns, like, you know, you're Googling some, you know, product that you want to buy, a new dining room table, or in my case, a new uh, pram. And um, and then you, you you have products marketed at you for, for weeks on end. And that's annoying. Um, it is kind of, you know, some kind of limitation, your right to privacy, but it's not the main game in town. It's not the most serious human rights issue. And then as it happens around the time that we uh, were starting this project, there was the Cambridge Analytica scandal and a range of other things that all kind of came to the fore. And, and so what I think the community really understands much, much better now is what is truly at stake. What we heard over and over again in our um, two major rounds of consultation, both here in Australia and overseas, was people saying to us, I've just realised that my personal information can be used against me. And that's very profound, we think, because what, what people were really saying when, when you asked the follow-up question was uh, that, that they're worried that their personal information can be used to do things um, that are wholly unacceptable, to discriminate against them, to, to treat them unfairly. And so um, I think that the fact that people have wised up to what the true most serious risks are, that's a very good thing. Um, I guess the thing that we haven't moved forward quickly enough in is, is it actually addressing that. And so um, do we have the right policy and law settings in place to fully protect our communities? I think the, the answer to that question is no. I mean, I think that's a really great assessment of where we are today and also segues nicely into bringing human rights and the value of using a human rights framework um, in this exercise. So I'd love to hear from your perspective how you frame the value of human rights as the reference point uh, for governing the adoption of AI and, and the other new technologies that fall under the remit of your project. I mean, I think this is very important. Uh, a, a few years ago, and it really wasn't that long ago, you had people like uh, Mark Zuckerberg, real leaders in the tech world, uh, saying that their philosophy was move fast and break things, um, that, that anything that got in the way of their uh, quote-unquote freedom to, um, to develop new products and services um, was a problem, uh, and particularly any kind of law um, that, that was even a law designed to protect the community was a problem and would, would stand in the way of us as citizens and consumers um, I guess, accessing the sorts of exciting products and services that they were busy developing. And then, of course, with things like Cambridge Analytica, um, that, that position became untenable. It became clear that, uh, that, that tech companies and others needed to wrestle with the, the real risks that were kind of becoming more apparent and, and that we couldn't look away from. And so what the tech world primarily did was they said, well, we, we need to be more ethical. We need to kind of consider more um, what we're going to do to, to keep people safe um, and, then, and then say so plainly. Uh, and th there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But what it ignored, and this was crucial, was the role of law. Um, for, for centuries, probably millennia, what we have always done in a um, liberal democratic country, um, be it the United States, Australia, or anywhere in between, is we've said the key uh, rules that are designed to keep us safe, to make sure that we can um, interact fairly and equally in everything from walking down the street to a marketplace, that those rules are set out in law. Everyone has to follow those laws. And then the, the details, um, because not all you know, law, law can't conceive of every conceivable situation. Um, the details really come down to people's ethics. But but what um, what really happened was a kind of inversion where ethics were, you know, 
really a matter of personal choice um, were, were the things that would guide um, these tech companies and, and others. And, and we think that that's, that's a missing, that, that really misses something very important. And that's why we say with human rights, you have literally, you know, more than 70 years of consideration of how to protect people in the most fundamental way to, to protect their basic dignity. And um, that human rights, international human rights law framework has proven remarkably ad adaptable in that 70 plus years um, since the end of the Second World War uh, to a range of different situations. And so we should apply um, that law as rigorously uh, to you know, the rise of artificial intelligence and this fourth industrial revolution as we have um, in a range of other areas that, that have kept us safe. So, so we think it's, it's very important. You know, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that it's um, just fundamental to underscore, as you've done in the answer you provided, the importance of law, not only in terms of uh, legislative and regulatory measures, but also um, having a shared shared system of values, having set standards that aren't uh, open and malleable to being filled uh, with content as decided by whatever industry or decision maker um, is in the hot seat and whatever suits them. Because I think that what that ends up doing is and, and has done with the sort of lead that ethics has taken in this field is creating confusion and conceptual incoherence that at an aggregate level actually holds us back from uh, moving forward in some of the most important conversations that we need to have and the actions we need to take. And yet at the same time, I'd love to hear um, your thoughts on how uh, we should square the demands of rights-based recommendations as it's derived from law um, when we're talking about uh, business and when we're talking about industry adopting practices that aren't necessarily being mandated um, under the letter of law. I think that's kind of an issue that, um, and you know, a lot has been said as to industry bodies that may uh, drive accountability and multi-stakeholder governance and things like that. But just really thinking about um, human rights as a system of law abstracted from, uh, you know, laws that aren't in place and where there isn't accountability as per the government. Yeah, it's a great question and a, and a hard one. Um, I guess I'd make a couple of observations. Um, the first is a big picture one because we, we, we've really got a choice in the kind of vision of society that we want to live in. Um, one where we we say, you know, that, that these questions are wholly and solely ethical questions. Questions, you know, and let's be clear, what we're talking about here when, when we say that, um, you know, where AI might cause harm, where AI might be used to discriminate against someone, um, that, that sort of thing. If, if you frame that as wholly and solely as an ethical question, what you're essentially saying is that the rules will um, be set um, entirely by the personal choices of those who end up following those rules. Um, now, that is... Uh, the definition of lawlessness. It evokes the kind of everyone for themselves hellscape that Hobbes described back in the 17th century. It's the antithesis of liberal democracy. And I, I know that I'm sort of speaking, you know, quite um, dramatically there, and I'm doing so deliberately because I, I think we, we, we need to confront that um, that problem because um, it's it's the reality it's, it's it's the logical consequence of that particular vision where where it, 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 it's not a question of regulated space it's wholly unregulated space that's it's, it's inviting pirates in to kind of rule um, so you'll be unsurprised to to hear that that I don't support that vision. Um, the the alternative, the most obvious alternative, is a system based on law. Um, 
And there's a very important place for ethics and ethical frameworks to, I guess, help uphold the spirit of the law. But the starting point has to be um, the law. And, and you're right to observe I know that the uh, our system of law um, is imperfect. Um, that that is definitely true. Um, but it's got to be better than that alternative that is being put forward. And so, to my mind, then what what it means um, to to I guess um, choose a system of of law is we're saying, well, what we're going to do is we're going to strengthen. Um, the, the legal framework itself. So there um, are already a range of laws that apply regardless of the technology that you use. And those laws need to be, um, uh, I guess, honoured. Um, they need to be uh, rigorously applied. And uh, that just hasn't happened enough when it comes to new technology. Um, you, you've had um, companies and, and individuals say, look, we're, we're just not going to be bound by the law. And uh, I've got to say, this is hugely perplexing for me. You've then had regulators go, sure, okay, <laughs> you're not going to be bound by the law, we, we accept that. Um, I, I don't think that that's a tenable position, um, not in a, not in any country that, um, that, that believes in the rule of law, that believes in liberal, liberal democratic principles and that believes in making sure that people... Um, community in particular is protected against harm. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, couldn't couldn't have said it better myself. And I actually really appreciate the uh, insistence and intensity behind the defense of, of human rights and the rule of law, because I actually think that is one of the uh, important defining characteristics of the human rights position is its insistence of itself, its insistence that rights be recognized as rights in order to give them uh, a matter of centrality and an element of salience that maybe would not otherwise be there or would um, put them second to the narrow concerns of whatever project or initiative or, um, you know, leader was at the table. I think let's let's move on to uh, talk a little bit about the algorithmic bias uh, report, the algorithmic bias and AI decision making report that you guys have recently come out with, with a focus on commercial systems. So, you know, first, I'd love as Human Rights Commissioner and under this project, you know, the mandate of your work is necessarily going to cover all technologies of consequence. So I'd love to hear first a little bit about what you've discovered and how you would summarize AI as distinct in terms of framing the human rights issues. So I, mean, I think um, what, what AI does in a few ways is, is different from what we've previously been able to do. Um, but I first want to make something really clear, um, and that is that AI, on the whole, at least, you know, in um, this part of the 21st century, isn't capable of allowing us to do things that we weren't already doing. Um, there, there are a few exceptions to that, but um, to, to, what, what I mean is we're not using AI to teleport ourselves, to do something that is that was completely impossible to imagine um, before the rise of the modern form of AI. Um, instead, what it's allowing us to do is the, the things we've already always done, um, but in new ways, um, and sometimes much better ways. And, and that's really interesting. So we've always made decisions um, based on predictions. So we've always um, kind of made decisions about um, whether to grant someone a, a loan um, and the prediction that is made is whether they're likely to be um, able to pay off that loan. Um, and banks have been doing that literally for hundreds of years. Um, what AI enables is a new way of kind of wrangling together huge amounts of data, um, both about people generally and about the individual person who's applying for the loan, and to uh, kind of form the prediction on that basis and then use that to make the decision. And so uh, I, I guess because of the way that, you know, people's personal information and other data is being brought together at scale, um, 
that that raises some new human rights issues. And then uh, then, then the way in which um, those decisions are then sometimes automated um, raises a set of um, human rights issues uh, in itself. And so what, what really prompted us to do this technical paper, which we released at the end of 2020, on using AI to make decisions by business was, was, was this recognition that businesses, um, quite rightly, are really excited about the, the opportunity that AI presents to make the sorts of decisions they've always had to make, but do it better um, and do it perhaps more efficiently and, and more quickly. And uh, what, what we're saying with this technical paper is if you're doing that or if you're planning to do that as a business, then you need to do two things. First, you have to recognise that doing this carries with it real risk. And the risk is that you're going to treat um, your customers and, and others that you engage with unfairly and perhaps um, even breach their human rights. Um, that, that is a real risk. And then secondly, if you're, if you're you know, willing to take on that risk, and again, we, we don't say that there's anything wrong with taking on that risk, then you need to be very rigorous about going through and um, identifying how that risk might arise in your specific business and the way in which your company is planning to use AI and make sure that you're able to address those risks sufficiently so that you can safely use your AI decision-making system. And, and, and ultimately, if, you're, if you aren't able to do that, if you aren't able to have a safe, reliable system that, that you can be um, confident is not going to breach the basic rights of customers, then you're not ready to deploy it in the same way that if you can't, you know, develop um, a car that doesn't blow up um, as you drive it out of the showroom, then the car isn't ready to be sold. And so I, I guess what we, it, it's, a, it's a technical paper, so it's um, it's not a kind of an easy bedtime read, but, but what we're <laughs> trying to do in putting this out there is to, um, to, to provide a resource for businesses that really want to kind of um, consider this in, in a bit more rigour. And, and so we, we did do that piece of work over um, about 18 months with some of Australia's leading um, experts in a range of areas, including data science, um, AI, um, and, and consumer protection. Yeah, I think the interdisciplinary uh, nature of this work can't be underscored and it really is important to continue and foster conversation across different types of experts to surface recommendations that are robust but also translatable and that's one thing that I found um, was really great about the paper actually something even maybe distinct in the work that I've read is it really translated things that were inherently technical and complex in ways that I feel uh, folks who come from a different background who don't have a technical background necessarily could really approach um, with greater clarity and, and deployability. And before I get into a, we get into a conversation about some of the technical concepts, which um, I'm excited to dive into, just off the top, one of the things that you know, strikes me, not just in recommendations like these, but the many others that have come out, is the cost um, and lift that's associated with a lot of these requirements and what the implications of that are for the AI industry, you know, particularly when it comes to um, advantages for incumbents and then promoting healthy markets through competition. If there are a lot of requirements, which obviously are important and necessary for many reasons, um, you know, how do we make it something that's feasible for uh, new players to enter into the space and, you know, be able to con contribute values and ideas and maybe even uh, disrupt uh, to positive impact on the human rights level and on, um, you know, some of these other things that we're looking at. You know, is that something that would require requires uh, government intervention to, um, you know, allow for this development to be democratized a little bit? Yeah, I think it's a really important question. So I think business um, is right to ask the question, you know, um, 
are we being put to um, essentially, you know, more cost uh, and 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 discomplexity and difficulty um, because we're interested in kind of using technology. Um, and if so, then, you know, on its face, that seems unfair um, and, and maybe not a good public policy position to start with. And so we've, we've wrestled really hard with that. And that's why for our technical paper, this, this paper that we're talking about, um, we, we started from the position that we're only going to apply existing laws. And so we, we particularly focused on unlawful discrimination. In other words, where a company might um, unlawfully discriminate against someone on the basis of something they can't control and is already protected in law, like their race or their age or their sex or gender or their disability. And uh, and, and for us, the starting point is, is simply this, that um, you're already prohibited from discriminating against someone on the basis of those things. And so if you happen to use a new piece of technology to do that, it is just as unlawful as if you did it in a, um, in a more conventional way. Now, um, what we sometimes find with, um, with, with AI and the problem of algorithmic bias is that the discrimination can be less apparent. It can be harder to kind of identify and root out. And that, that presents a problem both for enforcement um, as well as for the companies themselves. But I think they have to wrestle with that. I don't think there's any way around that. I think the, the, um, it's, the, uh, it's the reality of living in a country where we say um, that, that, that unlawful discrimination is unlawful. Um, there, there was a um, wonderful line that I came across um, about a decade ago um, and it was an interview between um, a, a Catholic priest, a famous Catholic priest here in Australia, and just an ordinary member of the public. And they were talking about human rights. And the, um, the, the individual said, uh, the, the thing about human rights is that unless they're in law and unless they're enforced, they're not rights at all. They're just good ideas. And I think that's such an important uh, I guess, insight, that uh, unless we, we take human rights seriously, unless we're willing to say, no, no, no you, you actually have to comply with these requirements, then they're not rights. We, we need to call them something else. That, that, and and yeah, they are just good ideas. And, uh, and so for companies that are using AI, I think that they need to kind of understand that, that, um, that that's something that they just have to comply with. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, you raise a really good point about the human rights system, you know, which, which is that there is a requirement within there um, where rights are concerned to, to dedicate resources. So, you know, it may be in, creating healthy markets, but also ensuring that these requirements are met, that the state is put in a position to prioritize funding and other types of policy decisions that will support and balance both objectives and kind of allow for those to move forward together um, under, you know, the requirement in human rights that funding be something and that resources be something that are directed and prioritized towards achieving um, objectives. So I, I, I think that's, yeah, I think yeah. that's, and just on that, I think that's right. right. So, so, you know, um, we at the Human Rights Commission here in Australia have primary responsibility for anti-discrimination laws. And so there's um, kind of a carrot and a stick. <laughs> the carrot is what we want to do is help people to comply with those laws, to, to, to treat, you know, their fellow citizens equally and, and not to engage in discrimination. And so that's why we, we put out this sort of advice. Um, but, but the corollary is that there's a stick, and that is that if you um, are not going to comply with those um, anti-discrimination laws, and, and the United States and, you know, pretty much every liberal democracy has anti-discrimination laws already in place. So if you're not going to comply then people like me are going to come after you. And we should, right? Because otherwise, as I say, these aren't rights at all. They're just good ideas. Yeah. 
Absolutely. So, okay, I want to get in. Um, it, it may be a little bit ambitious, but I think we can do it. Just get into some of the technical concepts that are discussed in the paper. And uh, just starting off here, so I think that the paper does a really great job of addressing the relationship between discrimination as a legal concept and algorithmic bias. So um, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts about the relationship between these two concepts. Um, and I'll just kick that off here by saying that, you know, on, on the one side, we have uh, non-discrimination or the right to equality, which you've been speaking about and which is kind of the focus of this paper when we're talking about algorithmic bias and AI systems. And then, um, you know, there's the issue of algorithmic bias and the fact that it can result from several places. And so it and and it's a bit of a, an umbrella term. And I think that in parts of the paper, you break it down um, as between algorithmic bias and actually societal bias, um, even though the latter can still be considered <laughs> the former, if you will. And so you either have bias that results from issues with the data or the design of the system, or you have the instance of a representative system, as it were, but one that is representing a historical injustice or inequality as it's been recorded in the data. Yeah. Um, so let me let me make a start, and uh, I want to acknowledge that some of the tech, some of the te terminology is a bit um, difficult in this area. So um, bias is not a term of art; it means different things to different people. But broadly speaking. Um, bias, um, I guess, is a term that often um, refers to where two people are being treated differently. Um, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that, right? So um, if I am selling my car um, and one person offers me $5,000 for the car and the other person offers me uh, $6,000 for the car, I'll have a bias towards the, the second person because they've offered me more money. Um, and that's because my main criterion um, in that relationship is to get as much money as possible for my um, secondhand car. Um, and uh, so, so that's an example, I guess, of, of bias that is just normal. It's not unlawful in any way. It's just it's just what, what happens. Um, discrimination, um, particularly when we're talking about unlawful discrimination, is a subset of bias. So it's where... The, the, the basis on which you're making that determination is not something that society um, has deemed to be acceptable, like, you know, who's offering you more money, um, but but rather something that is, um, is not acceptable, like someone's race or their age or their sex or their gender, et cetera. And so uh, what, what, when we talk about algorithmic bias, we're talking about where the operation of um, uh, of an algorithm, either because of something in the data set or something in the way the algorithm was um, created, is causing the decision making system to, um, to 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 result in unfairness and usually to result in unlawful discrimination. And, uh, and and what we're saying is, so, so, so that concept is often referred to, as I say, as algorithmic bias. And so what we're saying is that, um, you know, al algorithmic bias always <laughs> um, is, uh, you know, results in unfairness. Um, and sometimes that unfairness is actually unlawful. And so companies really need to wrestle with um, making sure that their um, systems for making decisions don't treat people unfairly. And I'm, I'm happy to say that, that the vast, vast majority of companies, both here and overseas, uh, feel that way already. They don't want to treat their customers unfairly. They, they don't want to um, unfairly, uh, unlawfully discriminate against uh, people. Uh, but, but what they need to do is make sure that their systems are properly designed in ways that will ensure that they're able to achieve that. So that is a great lead up to what I wanted to get into next, which is why isn't solving algorithmic bias as simple as removing protected attributes from data sets? And when I say um, protected attributes, that 
refers to legally. And when we talk about discrimination, there are um, certain bases upon which you are not permitted to discriminate race, gender, sexual orientation, and a handful of others. And, um, you know, would love for the benefit of our audience, if you could explain that a little bit um, and then maybe, uh, you know, follow up with some discussion on indirect discrimination and proxy variables as that applies to the conversation on algorithmic bias. Yeah. So this has happened a number of times um, in the context of race. So I think everyone right around the world now um, would um, would know and the vast, vast majority of people would also accept that racial discrimination is completely unacceptable. Um, so no one wants to do that. And so uh, the, the kind of simplest way to perhaps address that problem is to say, well, you just can't take into account someone's race or their ethnic background um, if you're making a decision about them. Um, but what we've seen in a number of situations, everything from bank loans I was talking about before to um, the criminal justice system, is that even if you take out, you, even if you, you prohibit the system from taking into account someone's race or their ethnic background, the results can still sometimes disadvantage, often you know, really quite horrifyingly, um, people of particular races. Um, so uh, let's take bank loans as, as an example. Um, you could say, you know, we're not going to take into account someone's race in determining whether to grant them uh, a home loan. Um, but if you take into account where they live, uh, their zip code, what we in Australia would call their postcode, um, you know, the, the suburb or, or district that, they, that they're living in, um, that can actually correlate often quite closely with, their race, because we know that while there isn't formal segregation in countries like the United States, that, that people do often live in areas that have high proportions of one particular um, racial group. Um, and so what ends up happening is that if you're taking into account someone's zip code, you're effectively taking into account their race um, or your 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 going a long way to taking into account their race because the zip code can act as a proxy, to use the term that you used a moment ago, for their race. And so what you need to be able to do is to, uh, if you're trying to clean the, the, the data, you need to um, be conscious not only of the protected attribute, but other things that might be proxies for that protected attribute. You know, so I'm just curious as to your thoughts on on that process, you know, as these correlations are discovered and, um, you know, in your paper, I think in one of the examples talked about browsing history and you just mentioned zip code and there are, are a whole host of others, you know, as these are identified, figuring out um, when it's impermissible and rises to the level of discrimination to consider those proxy variables um, and when you might keep those, those in, uh, so as not to sacrifice on the performance of the model, but look to other mitigation strategies, such as some that are also brought up in your paper, um, including, you know, increasing the complexity of the model so it can focus on even more distinctions between people that don't map to protected attributes or proxies. Um, and also another solution, which I'd love to talk about just briefly, is uh, building redress into AI decision-making systems um, for disadvantaged groups where you look more after the fact to um, build in different decision-making criteria for folks who have been historically disadvantaged by um, society and the composition of data that's reflected by that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you've described um, some of the the ways in which the problem can be addressed really well. So I wonder whether maybe I can answer your question a little obliquely, um, because I think what when you sort of gather together some of these um, these mitigation strategies that we talk about in our technical paper, um, you, you're left with a really important um, kind of overarching conclusion, and that is that you need to understand the decision-making context that you're operating in. 
So if you're making decisions about home loans, you need to understand, um, you know, the, the, the some of the historical problems that, say, women have faced when they've applied for home loans that have meant that um, women have been have found it much more difficult to get home loans. And similarly, people of colour, both um, here in Australia and in the United States and in many other countries as well. Um, and that's where this, this problem of disparate impact arises, where, what we would call indirect discrimination. Um, and maybe to make this a bit more concrete, maybe I can kind of go back in history a little bit and um, just give you a quick outline of the, the case. Um, it was about 40 years ago now, the leading case here in Australia on um, indirect discrimination, because it, I think um, elucidates uh, what, what, what I'm saying about understanding the context in which you make the decision. So th this case, um, you know, actually it was from my former organisation, but it was 40 years ago, so it was, you know, I was like one when, <laughs> when the case was um, run. Um, it was about um, uh, the, the Australian iron and steel industry. And at that point in our history, um, the, the, the iron and steel industry had been almost entirely dominated by men. It was incredibly difficult for women to get a job in that area, um, and, and that's true in, in lots of other countries as well, I realise. But it had just started to change. In the 1970s, women were just starting to get jobs in the iron and steel industry, and it was an extraordinary, almost revolutionary change for women to be able to work in that area. And then, of course, there was a major downturn in that um, area of, um, of our economy and um, a whole bunch of um, the companies that, that working in the iron and steel industry started closing or, or significantly contracting. And so it meant that they were um, laying off huge numbers of people in their workforce. And so what one of the major companies had to do was decide who to lay off. They, they wanted to continue, but they wanted to continue in a much smaller way. So they were going to um, fire a number of people, but they wanted to work out a basis for determining who keeps their job and who doesn't. And what they decided to do was to um, lay off only... Um, but they had a policy which was called um, last in, first out. So if you've been working in the company for a long time, then you would stay in your job. But if you'd been hired only relatively recently, then you would um, be more likely to lose your job. And so um, what they ended up um, doing was laying off um, a hugely disproportionate number of women. So these, these women who had you know, fought so hard to be able to enter this industry suddenly um, ended up almost all losing their jobs and it, you know, quickly became a male-dominated industry again. And so the the, the case that um, that went all the way to our highest court was essentially no, no one was trying to say, oh well, no, we're not going to employ any women. We're not only going to fire women, but but the effect was essentially that. Um, the effect was to um, uh, you know disproportionately um, fire women because of this policy. And, and the same thing happens in AI every day of the week, you, you um, craft an algorithm which, you know, in a lab makes perfect sense. But if you don't understand the context in which you're applying this algorithm, then there's a real risk that you're going to have these unintended consequences. And when we talk about indirect discrimination, we're almost always talking about unintended consequences. Um, and, and the only way of addressing that is to understand properly the area in which you're trying to make decisions in and make sure that you test um, your system for making decisions really effectively before you go live and determine whether you're going to have these unintended consequences. And how do you think that we bring that contextual understanding to the process of how businesses are developing these systems and these algorithms? Does it have to do with uh, hiring and ways that companies are thinking about their corporate governance structures and the types of people that they employ? Or is it something that we look more to focus on partnership as between 
uh, business and civil society. I'm just thinking out loud here really about the the transfer of that knowledge because, you know, what you've just provided there as to the context in that example, you know, that's a sophisticated historical analysis, which oftentimes um, is required to bring forth the human rights context and also to shed light on some of these issues that will identify where the proxies are and, um, you know, what needs to be attended to there. And, and so I really want to move on to talk about some of the geopolitical concerns and other things that um, I'm excited to get to. But, you know, just would love to hear your thoughts, because I also think structurally there are, um, you know, oftentimes barriers as between nonprofits or civil society and, and business working together in those ways. And so I'm just thinking here as to, you know, how we can meaningfully seed that capacity where these algorithms are being created. Yeah. Uh, so really quickly, that all of the things that you've kind of touched on there are important. Um, and I'll mention just one in particular. And that is um, if you're developing like an AI tool um, to help you make decisions, the, the most common way in which you'll do it is you'll have a company that really understands the kind of background to making those decisions, but doesn't understand AI or data science. And they will partner with um, a company that really understands data science and AI. Um, and essentially they'll say, just can you develop us this tool? Um, and there'll be a bit of discussion back and forth and then they'll get the tool and then they'll start using it. I guess what what we're trying to say is that both of the sides in that sort of partnership actually have really important knowledge that they need to share. So um, the company that, that makes the decisions, um, let's say it's the, you know, the iron and steel company, um, it needs to kind of communicate to the, the tech company um, you know, look, we've, we've had this, this issue about, you know, employing women. We need to kind of, we, we want to preserve this. We don't want to go backwards. Here, here's some really important kind of um, elements of, of the industry that we work in um, that you need to understand that may be different from lots of other industries. And, uh, and, and when you're kind of crafting your algorithm, um, you need to kind of accommodate those things. And then similarly from the um, tech company side that, you know, they need to communicate what are some of the um, strengths and limitations of data science to make decisions in that particular area and not kind of oversell the capacity um, for, for data science to be some kind of um, piece of magic that just allows problems to, to be wished away. So I'd, I'd love to move on just talking about things out of more macro level and some of the global concerns. And, you know, you and I have talked about this, but I personally believe that what we're doing each internally in our countries as liberal democracies, the effect of that is necessarily limited if we aren't at the same time in tandem looking to how these issues are playing out on the global stage geopolitically and particularly in countries that have long been authoritarian um, like China and those that are trending that way under the influence of such forces. So what are your thoughts about how we can begin uh, working collectively at the global level to tackle uh, these issues. And I mean, obviously, it's not a problem we can solve directly. It's more um, something that, that needs to be managed. But, you know, what do you think are some ways of moving forward here? And, and what are your thoughts also, I mean, on, on the urgency of, of this issue? Um, I know I've stated it fairly emphatically because it is something that I, I believe is is ground zero when it comes to the top issues when we're thinking about um, the human rights challenges that are that are posed by AI. And uh, I just would love to hear hear your thoughts about how we uh, become stand, step into or are cognizant of not only our domestic role but also our role um, in the collective as as one shared humanity. Well, I think. Um, we need to go back to first principles. So in a liberal democracy like the US or Australia, um, any piece of technology uh, is, is developed and used for people. Um, and that's, that's as true 
uh, when it's being used by government as it is uh, when it's being used by a business. Um, so if it's being used by government, it's, it's being used to deliver services better, or it should be, um, or it could be used to, um, you know, make the government more efficient or whatever, but, but, it's, but it's for our benefit um, as, as the, you know, voting public. And then if it's for companies, you know, uh, companies have um, taken note of what people have been saying over the last couple of years, and they've been saying it to us very clearly, and that is that um, they, they want technology uh, to be respectful of their basic human rights. And so there's, I think, a very clear um, impetus to, to develop um, and use new technologies like AI in ways that bake in human rights protections. Uh, we would say that that's the right thing to do. That's the, the, the legally correct thing to do. But we would also say that that's the smart thing to do because that's what our citizens, our consumers are saying they want and need. And so I think for um, countries in, you know, the, the liberal democratic countries in the, in, the, in the West, as it's sometimes called, uh, I think that that gives a very clear message about how um, those countries should be setting their regulatory and policy settings to, to, to make sure that they're giving their people what they want. Um, now, there is, you know, there are alternatives out there, and you've kind of referred to China, where um, AI in particular is being used um, much more extensively to conduct surveillance to, um, to be used in more authoritarian ways. And uh, I guess, you know, th there is polling on this, but, but I don't even think we need to resort to that polling. We all know intuitively, if you, if you ask someone in the street in a liberal democracy, um, is that what you want? The answer is no. <laughs> there are very few people who want that. And I, you know, put to one side whether people in China um, or, or in other countries that are using AI in more authoritarian ways want um, this as well. It's a question for another day. But, but, but what's clear to me is that in a liberal democracy, that is not what we want and need. And so we should set our, um, our course to, to achieve the kind of, kind of technology future that, that our people want. Yeah, I, I like that approach. It's sort of, um, you know, stepping away from what can or can't be accomplished through the various tools of diplomacy, like sanctions and tariffs and uh, gatekeeping institutional memberships. You know, you're looking at step one as keeping your house in order or leading by example um, and looking to what can be done domestically and then, you know, maybe even working together to strengthen um, how those policies are running domestically in various liberal democracies, sort of strengthening that muscle, if you will, um, at the same time as or before turning to, um, you know, what, what we may do to push back on the encroachment of digital authoritarianism as coming out of China, because obviously steps and other countries. Um, and obviously there are distinct steps that need to be taken there the same way that we have approached uh, foreign policy issues in the past. But what I'm hearing you say is that however that exercise takes shape, it will be uh, stronger and much better served by how we lead by example with our own uh, approach. I think that's right. And I also think the two things are really connected. And so, I mean, if you, if you let's, let's take a different area. Let's take trade as an example. Free trade works for liberal democracies that are capitalist countries because in our domestic markets, um, that's kind of how they're set up, right? So we, um, you know, we're able to trade freely within our own countries. Uh, we, 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 we don't have collectivization in terms of farming practices, that sort of thing. And so it's a natural extension then to have free trade internationally. So the, so the two things are really closely aligned. But the starting point is is kind of asking the question um, as a country, you know, what 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 do we want? Um, and then um, it makes sense then to push 
that as their kind of standard internationally as well. And and so um, I guess what I'm saying when it comes to AI is something quite similar, that the, the liberal, liberal democratic principles of freedom and equality are unsurprisingly exactly what our people want. And so that should be reflected uh, within our own countries, but it should also be reflected in terms of our country's foreign policy and how they, uh, I guess, work um, internationally to set the global rules. That's great. So I think this is that's a great note to just move into wrapping up. And I wanted to ask you a couple questions and would love if you could just answer with uh, the first thing that comes to mind. And, you know, these questions are just meant more to be thought provoking and as a point of inspiration. So if you're game, um, I will start with those. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, so what do you think is the single most devastating global human rights challenge that we're facing today? I mean, the sad <laughs> truth is that we have a number of challenges to choose from, and they're all huge. Um, I, I feel uh, that the, the three most obvious ones are the pandemic. Um, I guess some of the threats to um, liberal democratic values that we've seen, I guess, most obviously um, in the aftermath of the US presidential election. Um, and but the third one is is climate change and the threat to our environment. And I feel like the third one is the, is the greatest challenge. Uh, it is so existential. Um, it is one that is um, bigger than any individual country by a long way. So it requires genuine cooperation. And it's bearing down on us very quickly. If you could implement one structural change, public or private, with zero friction, what would it be? I think it would be reaching a, a kind of consensus um, that um, respecting the dignity of, of everybody else should be our first priority. Um, when you um, when you try and distill the literally tens of thousands of pages of human rights treaties and um, and court cases and legislation and speechifying from people like me. It, it boils down to something really simple, which is that we need to respect each other's dignity. And uh, in, in the 21st century, that should be exactly our starting point whenever we're considering a major challenge. But often um, what, what I find um, is that, that that question is relegated to kind of a third or fourth order consideration. Uh, and it shouldn't be, because that's not what our people want. It's not, um, I think, what has served us well as a civilization. So if we could find a way of, of always putting um, individual dignity at the fore, then I think we would create a much a much better world for everyone. Well, I, I think you have answered the next question um, just about as well as anyone could, which was what's your elevator pitch on the value of human rights? <laughs> so you, <laughs> you, you predicted that that was going to be the next question and, and just got right to it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think it, it, it works. I mean, human rights is so important because it's morally the right thing to do but it also happens to be in our collective self-interest as well. It, it, you know, each of us benefits from, um, I guess, a society where people can be confident that they will um, be treated fairly and equally, um, that they won't suffer discrimination, that their privacy will be respected. And, and, and so that's, I think, you know, the best advertisement I think I've ever come across for human rights. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And the final question is, what's one area where you are hopeful to see uh, growth in AI development? I, I think we've seen in the last couple of years, starting with uh, the 2018 um, statement uh, at the G7 about responsible innovation, that countries and companies are kind of coming to the view that they need to um, innovate in ways that are consistent with our values um, and, and, and the best of our values, um, like freedom and equality. 
And so I'm really hopeful that we're on a positive trajectory there, that um, the companies and countries will be held to account um, by a much better informed um, citizenry. And and that, that does give me hope. I think that's a great note on which to end our conversation. Um, Ed, thank you so much for, for being here and for being game to dive into these questions with me. It's been absolutely a delight. Oh, well, more power to you, Anna. I think your um, you know, deep expertise, but also capacity to explain things clearly and simply is so important. So I was delighted to be part of the podcast.